Welcome to Our Missouri, a podcast about the people, places, culture, and history of the 114 counties and independent city of St. Louis that comprise the great state of Missouri. Each episode focuses on a topic related to the state, ranging from publications about Missouri's history to current projects undertaken by organizations to preserve and promote local institutions. The Our Missouri podcast is recorded at the Center for Missouri Studies in Columbia and is generously provided to you by the State Historical Society of Missouri. And now, here's your host, Sean Rost. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, or whatever hour you're tuning in to listen to the Our Missouri podcast. My name is Sean Ross, and I'll be your guide to explore the memories, moments, and misfortunes from our Missouri. 100 years ago this summer, Missourians awaited news regarding the ratification of the 19th Amendment. The state had approved the amendment, which prohibited the federal government and states from denying a citizen the right to vote based upon sex a year prior in 1919. However, it would take another year before Tennessee became the 36th and final state needed to ratify the new constitutional amendment in August 1920. As we consider the centennial of women's suffrage, the Our Missouri podcast invites listeners to join us as we explore the fight for the right to vote through the eyes of a group of show-me suffragists who are not as well known in Missouri history. In this episode, we turn our attention to Northwest Missouri and Alma Nash of Maryville. Joining us to discuss Nash and her involvement with the Missouri Ladies Military Band is Alyssa Ford. She holds a PhD in history from Arizona State University and is currently an associate professor of history at Northwest Missouri State University. Welcome to our Missouri, Alyssa. Hi, it is great to be here. Um, I'm excited to be able to talk with you about Alma Nash, especially when we've got the centennial of women's suffrage this year, and then also for the Missouri Bicentennial. It's a great um, convergence of, of events. Very good point. Now, how did you first encounter Alma Nash? I think that's a great question. I am not from Missouri. Um, I am from Texas. I've lived in New Jersey and Maine and um, Arizona, all over the place. Um, and when I arrived here in Maryville um, to start my job at Northwest Missouri State University, um, I also got involved with the Nottoway County Historical Society. And in doing that, um, one of the first things they showed me, because they knew I was a women's historian, uh, so one of the first things they showed me was this um, exhibit that they had about Alma Nash and um, the Missouri Ladies Military Band. Um, and they've got some just really wonderful materials there. They've got instruments that, um, and I think I'm giving away too much first, but anyway, they, they have all of this great collection and I found it really fascinating that there was this woman and, and really this group of women that did these incredible things on the national scale for women's suffrage and that it's a story that that I hadn't heard of and it's honestly a story that many people even here in Maryville hadn't heard of. Now, you kind of spoke about it just briefly there, but tell us a little bit about who Alma Nash was. Yeah, that's why I said I think I'm giving away too much before I really, before we get into it. So um, I think the story that I want to tell today, it often becomes the story of Alma Nash, but it's, it's really not just her. It's this whole band um, and, and the band that did something so incredible. Um, but of course, there wouldn't have been a band without Alma. Alma Nash was born in 1883. Um, her parents had moved to Maryville just a few years prior to that. Her father was a local doctor and surgeon, um, very well known in the community and for his work with the hospital. Um, she was a musical child and um, attended the Maryville Seminary. So the, very, the Maryville Seminary was this short-lived um, 
place of higher education in Maryville um, a few years prior to the establishment of the normal school. Um, and the normal school is what ended up becoming um, Northwest Missouri State University. So at the seminary, um, she studied string instruments. Um, so she really focused on things like the banjo, the mandolin, and the guitar, which are often not instruments that, um, well, some of them are not instruments that we always associate um, with women playing. Um, though she was also very um, proficient in some percussion instruments as well. After she graduated, um, she didn't stay in Maryville. She actually took off across the country and, and joined some different traveling music groups. And, and at the Historical Society here in town, they've got this really fantastic um, postcard. So it's this kind of professional postcard that she had that she'd use. Um, and it's her with two other male members who are part of this traveling music group. And she did that for a while, and then she returned to Maryville, um, and she worked as a music teacher here in town. Um, she gave private lef lessons out of her home. Um, as a part of that, she also, um, she wrote music, there were operas and things like that that she wrote and were performed um, here, Stanbury, Albany, different places in the region. Um, and she also created different community groups. Some of them were all men's groups, some were all women's groups, some were mixed sex, um, and some were uh, students, some were just community members. And she'd advertise um, in the local paper pretty regularly that she was putting together a, a certain kind of group, a call for, for members for people to audition. And so one of these uh, was organized in 1911. She advertised in a newspaper for an all women's band that she was putting together. Um, and this was going to be a concert band. And after she organized it, she got enough members together, there were around 30 of them. Um, they performed really regularly um, across the county. They'd have performances in different uh, concert uh, halls here in town in Maryville. Uh, they would perform at uh, local Chautauqua groups. They'd perform at um, county fairs. Uh, there's really great pictures of them at some of the different fairs uh, that happened here in town. And it is this band that she formed in 1911 that in 1913 is transformed into the Missouri Ladies Military Band. Um, and when we say military at that time, military was used to refer to a marching band. Um, though you might notice, I said earlier that this actually wasn't a marching band. It was, she created a concert band, but they in 1913 become this military or marching band. Um, and they were made up um, primarily of high school students, of uh, college students, and of recent graduates. Um, many of them were local school teachers. Um, and so there you've got this kind of overview of both Alma and this band that she ends up creating. Very fascinating. And, and one thing I think that's kind of interesting when we think about not just her, but also the community that she's growing up in, you used a term, um, the Maryville Mayu, uh, to kind of explain kind of what is going on in Maryville at the time that she is, is kind of born, raised, and, and growing into adulthood. So what does this term mean in terms of the political and social activism of not just simply someone like Nash, but also kind of women in rural sections of Missouri, such as Northwest Missouri? Yes. So when I arrived in Maryville, I think it's this Maryville milieu that really surprised me more than the band itself and what the band had done. Um, in one of my first couple of years here, I had a student um, that I, I run our public history program, and one of the students was working on an exhibit about women's suffrage. 
in Maryville and in Nottoway County. And um, she was going through different things that had been published. She was looking through newspapers and talked about um, all of these incredible suffragists who came to Maryville. Um, and of course, she wasn't the first person to have discovered this and people at the Historical Society knew this, they had exhibits about it. Um, but it was definitely new to me as someone who was new to Missouri. And it was new to many of the people in the community and to the students that we have at Northwest. Um, and so what re really surprised me, and I think what may surprise a lot of people, especially today, is the social environment in many of the small communities that existed not just across Missouri, but across the United States at this time. Um, the social environment here was filled with these people who were outspoken. They were active and at times they were surprisingly progressive. And I say surprisingly pro progressive because we don't think about a small rural town in Missouri bringing in national suffragists. Um, and on top of that, these are people who were um, connected to and knowledgeable of state events, national events, world events. I think sometimes today we think that because of the internet, we're maybe the most connected generation and like we know the most things. But these are people who read their newspapers um, and they were getting access to a pretty incredible amount of information and they didn't shy away from talking about controversial issues. Um, and they didn't just talk about them, they debated them. And they didn't debate them like we do today where we like hide behind our computer screens and like we say things and then we like never have to see the person in public. So we're not really debating, we're just like throwing out insults in a sense. Um, but I mean, they created debate clubs. Um, they had debates back and forth um, in the newspapers. Um, and so really just a lot of involvement in clubs, organizations, and activities. Um, and one of the things that they were particularly active in discussing from the 1870s through the passage of women's suffrage on the national level in 1920 was women's suffrage. And, and I, and many small towns had national suffragists who appeared to give talks. And partly that was because these national suffrage organizations had a very active speakers bureau where they would travel the country um, purposely, right? To get information out to different places and to different areas. Um, and by the early 1900s, they really began to target rural areas. Um, they initially had thought if we get enough like urban men on board, like women's suffrage will pass and like that hadn't worked for decades. And so they realized maybe they needed like rural men on board too. But in Maryville, it wasn't just suffragists, suffragists who were um, kind of rolling into town on the railroad and decided, hey, Maryville seems like a good place to talk. It was women's clubs in Maryville who were specifically and purposefully inviting suffragists to come to Maryville to talk. And then you have these women who are speaking to crowds of 500, of 800 people um, that are showing up and they are incredibly supportive of what these suffragists are saying. Um, and I think that's something that, that really surprised me the most. Um, so for instance, in 1876, um, Susan B. Anthony came to speak in Maryville. Um, let me just say that again. In 1876, Susan B. Anthony came to Maryville to talk about women's suffrage. She was invited by 
the library association. Um, the community had just built their first public library and they actually invited Susan B. Anthony to be, uh, and they sold tickets so that this would be a fundraiser to buy books um, for the new library. So they were not inviting her because they thought this was going to be like a contentious debate and get people riled up in Missouri. They were inviting her because they thought that she was going to be a popular speaker that would help get them enough money to, to fill their library with books. Um, and the local newspapers um, were very positive, reflected very positively um, on her talk. Um, and she did not mince her words. Um, a few years later, Elizabeth Cady Stanton came to Maryville to talk. This is the one that probably surprised me the most. Um, I think most uh, other people are often surprised when they hear Susan B. Anthony um, because she's probably the most well-known. Um, but Susan B. Anthony was almost everywhere. Um, she was, uh, had a very active speaking schedule. Um, but Elizabeth Cady Stanton was central um, in the creation of the women's suffrage movement. And she did not give as many speeches. She didn't travel as much as Susan B. Anthony. Um, Elizabeth Cady Stanton was married. She had many children. Um, and she was not able to maintain that same kind of speaking schedule. Um, and so she, she really stood out, um, stood out to me. Um, a few years later, Phoebe Cousins came to speak in Maryville, this by now in 1882. Um, she was one of the first female lawyers in the country, um, and she's from St. Louis. And she again was invited by the Literary Association, um, which I think is an inversion of that Library Association. Um, and then in the following decade, in 1901 and 1902, Anna Howard Shaw came to Maryville. She came twice, um, once in 1901, once in 1902, um, to talk about women's suffrage. And, and at this point, we kind of see a shift a bit. The newspapers are a little less um, enthusiastic about the speakers. Um, so for instance, the Maryville Tribune, which was one of the central paper in town at that time, said, quote, she is a great woman, one of force and fluency, a dozen such women turned loose over the country might someday secure for women the right to vote, which that sounds pretty positive. Um, but then they follow it up and say, fortunately, there are very few of her argument here, fortunate for the women themselves, fortunate for the homes of our country, and fortunate for the men. Um, and this is really not the reaction that um, that the local community seemed to have to Cousins and to Anthony and to Stanton when they had um, come to the area. And, and there were some additional suffragists who came as well. So we, we've got some really interesting things that were happening in the community in the time period in which Alma Nash and the other women who joined this band were growing up. Um, they are not unfamiliar with suffrage and with seeing the idea of women's suffrage um, being debated around them. Something that I'm kind of intrigued by in that regard is, as you mentioned, as this band is beginning to form together and begin to, without giving away on my end, give, get, preparing for its kind of large, one of its larger events, you know, well, the feelings and suffrages you're suggesting are shifting. So as we're approaching the passage of, of the 19th Amendment, the ratification of it, you know, how is Nottoway County, how is Northwest Missouri, uh, its citizens, its voters feeling about the issue of suffrage? I think that's a really interesting question, and I do not have an exact answer for it. Um, I think it is really hard to tell 
but you can see in the newspapers there's a little bit more criticism that's being directed at the idea of women's suffrage at these suffrage speakers. Um, you also see um, some of the rhetoric that's being used to describe the band as they're gearing up for this trip to DC. Um, they're, the, the women are treated D dismissively. I mean, they're like it, it, the community's excited that the band is going to do this, but they're 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 not really excited that they're going to support suffrage. They're excited that kind of people from Maryville get to kind of participate in a historic event, right, in the nation's capital. I don't know if it actually means that the community was less supportive of women's suffrage. Um, something that I wonder is that. It is perhaps that by the 1910s, the idea of women's suffrage started to feel more real. Um, it started to feel more possible now. When we're in the 1870s and 1880s, this felt like a very abstract possibility. So it wasn't um, as, as difficult, perhaps, for some people in the newspapers to entertain the idea or think that these women had maybe interesting ideas but you know in parentheses you're thinking it's never really going to happen and, and now it seems a little bit more possible and so some people were more vocally against it because while you have some of that kind of public opposition to suffrage or this d dismissing of women as being kind of frivolous and unable to to, to have thoughts um, Simultaneously, it's also in the 1910s where you have this entire group of young women who are signing up purposefully to support the idea of women's suffrage to travel across the entire country. And this is a pretty daunting undertaking, and they're doing it all in support of women's suffrage. So you've got some like public opposition, but I think you also have a like a private growth, in a sense, a, a personal and individual growth of support that you see. So you, you've got this, that, that, that debate, that struggle, right? Um, you can kind of see it playing out, not just in the state legislatures where they're voting down, sometimes voting up women's suffrage, but you can see that happening in these small communities. Now, in 1913, as you, as you mentioned, the, the Missouri Ladies Military Band travels over to Washington, D.C. for a large, large suffrage parade. Uh, tell us a little about how they became involved with that and really how the title Missouri Ladies Military Band shifts to what is known as, to some as this Missouri Suffrage Band. I should say that the, the name of the group can change and it, it appears differently in dis different news newspapers at different times. Um, they're not really a group that had a set name in a sense, um, but they become more this like more known as this Missouri ladies military band um, as they're getting involved in this uh, national suffrage parade. So um, the, the group had already existed. And of course, they're, they're, the, the participants had changed over the years and things like that. It's not the same group that it was there since 1911. Um, but this group had already existed for, for several years. And then in mid-January 1913, uh, either Alma or one of the band members, uh, we're not really sure, saw an announcement. And I assume probably maybe a newspaper announcement. I don't know where. Um, but they saw an announcement that there was going to be what was called a woman's suffrage parade. Um, and it was going to be in D.C. 
that March, um, the day before Woodrow Wilson's presidential inauguration. Um, and there was a call, and, and I think there was probably in this that it was a call for bands to participate. Um, because the suffrage, the organizers of this parade had a committee for bands. And so they were putting out these calls to try to find bands who were going to, to sign up and participate. What we do know is that Alma sent the organizers a telegram. Um, and in that telegram, we, we don't know exactly what she said, but and we don't have a copy of the telegram, but we do know that she asked um, for the band to participate. On January 25th, so this is all happening pretty quickly, on January 25th, the organizer um, of the bands for the parade replied, invited the group to participate, um, and seemed especially excited because um, this organizer said that they were the only band that had expressed a specific interest in suffrage. And so from that, of course, we can surmise that when Alma had contacted them, she said, we'd like to participate and we'd like to participate because we support women's suffrage. And so this is one of the few times that we actually have this note that they wanted to participate because not because they saw this as like an opportunity to travel, but because they supported the idea of women's suffrage. So that's really key. And then from there, it's June, January 25th. The parade is March 3rd in DC and they are in Maryville, Missouri. So they are left with just over one month to raise money for 22 um, of these band members, plus Alma's, na uh, Alma's mother as a chaperone, um, to raise enough money for them all to travel, for them to ship their uniforms and their instruments, uh, for them to learn to march. Um, and I think that that last statement might be the most surprising thing, because if you remember from what I said earlier, they had been formed as a concert band. But if now you're signing up to march in a parade, um, you need to become a marching band, a military band, right? And so this is where we're starting to get that part of their name. But it's January and February in Northwestern Missouri, and I'm not sure um, how many of you have tried to march outside with a bass drum in mid-February in northwestern Missouri, but it's really not going to happen. And so they practiced in some of the concert halls, um, the performance venues here in Maryville. And so what they would do is just practice like marching back and forth so they could get a sense of how it would work. Could they even play their instruments while they were doing this? I mean, that's a really huge transition if you've never done that before. But this is like a tiny little amount that you're marching. And so they actually arranged and they took the train from Maryville to D.C. And they actually arranged um, uh, on one of the stops in Pennsylvania to get outside to try marching outside. So it's the only time they ever got to practice marching out of doors before the parade itself actually happened. And that is just I think anyone who's ever done marching band, um, that's going to be absolutely amazing. Normally, there are about 30 people in the group, um, but 22 made the trip. It was everything from a piccolo to a bass drum. I mean, this is a, a full band that was going. Um, these are women marching for the first time with heavy instruments, doing things that, that women weren't normally doing. And um, this was going to be incredibly physically exhausting. And on top of that, they were just coming off two solid days, basically, on a train. Um, they left March 1st, they traveled overnight, they arrived in D.C. in the morning on March 3rd, um, and they had to get off that, that train and be ready to go because the parade was scheduled to begin at 2 p.m. Um, so this is something that was happening, happening really, really quickly. 
the the parade itself is well known not for the involvement of the band that's why it's well known for us in Maryville hopefully for some of us here in Missouri um but the but the the parade in some ways was kind of a disaster there was there were 5000 women who were involved in the parade um floats and cars and marching units and people on horseback and they marched from the US Capitol to the treasury department but there were thousands and thousands in the crowd mostly men um some of them angry and throwing things this uh, the the US Senate um undertook an investigation afterwards into um the Capitol police um for not protecting the women in the parade um the women from Maryville didn't really experience this they had been planning to march with their state contingent the group from Missouri um and this is one of my favorite quotes from the newspapers uh, the St. Louis Globe Democrat reported quote that the suffrage leaders do not propose to have any mere men musicians leading their parade so long as high class women are available and so what they're talking about is that there were several bands that were slated to participate in the parade but it seems like and I, I, this has not been able to be wholly verified it's very difficult to kind of fully identify all of the bands that participated but it seems like the group from Maryville was likely the only all women's band that was involved in this parade um and it's and again the one that had expressed this interest in suffrage and so they were really pulled to the front because they the the group wanted this all women's band to be early in the parade um and then the story goes almanash herself uh, reports on this that because of the unrest they couldn't part the crowds to get the parade to be able to start that they were pulled even further forward to help to start playing to sort of part the crowds so that this parade could begin and um, what that also means is that the band was left out of some of the more physical attacks that happened during the parade um those came a little bit later in the parade um and so the women uh, were constantly sending telegrams and letters back home throughout the whole week that they were gone um and the women just loved their time they said everyone was so gracious they 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 really enjoyed the experience and and saw how important that it was um almanash uh, wrote a letter home or it, maybe it was in one of her interviews with the newspaper when she returned but said you know she hadn't yet had a chance to really to think about um to reflect on this important thing that we did right and they did so much when they were there they they attended a session of congress they went to the inauguration parade the following day and this i think is one of the funniest parts they said almost nothing about it um the, the the inauguration parade meant nothing to them uh they were there to go to their suffrage parade to attend suffrage meetings and to do suffrage stuff that's what they cared about they were back in maryville on march 8th and then sadly just one week later the missouri legislature actually voted down a constitutional amendment to give women the right to vote in the state um and so you can see that that suffrage is something that was still a concern to them and i think it's after that time where we're starting to see them called just briefly like this uh suff as a suffrage band um and that's because when they returned from the suffrage parade they were really well known there are newspaper articles across the entire country that were published about this band calling them the Missouri Ladies military band with a huge photograph of Almanash i mean they they become these national figures for a while and that same summer in 1913 they actually go on a 
tour of county fairs in the state. Um, as the Missouri suffrage band. And they, and this also is published in a lot of newspapers across the state and a little bit across the country. And the newspaper articles say that they are doing this, quote, to soothe the savage beast of man and charm him through music into granting the ballot to women. Um, so they, they really are becoming this suffrage band, right? That is their purpose. And then the following year in May 1914, um, they went to St. Louis for National Suffrage Day and they participated in a parade at Forest Park. From there, that's really the end that I have been able to see of the band's explicit involvement in suffrage or even as this kind of military, kind of quote, military marching band. It's really a fascinating story in a lot of ways. And I was thinking of my own experience as marching band, as you mentioned, the winter experience of trying to march. <laughs> it really, really was bringing back some fond memories there as you were speaking on that. Um, but thinking about Alma Nash, um, and you mentioned kind of the what appears to not so much be the end, but really a kind of a, a, a drop, perhaps, in the a participation of the Missouri women's or Missouri the, the band. Um, what really, when we think about Alma Nash, you know, she's in her you know 30s as the kind of suffrage amendment, as the 19th Amendment is coming up for ratification. Um, you know, what does she do? I mean, with the remainder of her life, socially, political, and even musically. We could think of in Northwest Missouri or in other parts of the country. Mm -hmm. And I would say for the rest of her life, it's, it's really focused on music. Um, that's the story that we know. Um, she may have had this, this continued um, deep devotion to women's suffrage. Um, I feel like she must have if she did all of this work. Um, and, and I mean, she was very active and, and purposeful in getting this band to participate, but um, we don't, have other information from her or about her talking about that. We do know a little bit. Um, there's hints here and there of some of the band members um, and that they were continued um, still interested in suffrage until the passage of the 19th Amendment. One of the women in the band, um, she hadn't gone to the DC parade, um, probably because she played the piano and that doesn't march well. But she, we, the Historical Society has a postcard from her that says it's, she was a school teacher in the county and her postcards to her mom and says, you know, something along the lines of like, I won't be home tonight. I'm going out to debate suffrage. And that was in the year or two following the parade. Another member of the band who um, had gone to DC told a story about how when she was in a, a, one of the smaller towns in the county and when she heard about the passage of the 19th amendment, she was so excited that she got up on the counter of the local general store and danced, right? I mean, I think these are stories that we I would love to have about Alma Nash, um, but but we don't. We do know that she was still she was incredibly active in music, and she was devoted um, to, to music and to her students. Um, she never married. Um, her uh, father died in the 1910s, and then she and her mother moved to Kansas City in 1918. Um, she continued to teach private lessons. That was the focus of what she did. She taught thousands of students, um, but she also worked with several orchestras. Um, she played the piano for one of the silent film houses, which is something I always think would be great fun. Um, she wrote instructional music books. So she, she was the author of several books on stringed instruments and how to play them. Um, and she would travel across parts of the country. She uh, traveled actually back to Maryville uh, to promote that book and to talk about it. And, and she did all of these things um, up until her death in 1965 at the age of 82. 
um, there's an oral history that was done with one of her students who said that she actually died um, between music students showing up. I mean, so, I mean, she, she worked until the end, but we don't know, we, do, we don't know more about her involvement as in terms of women's suffrage, but that's really the story that we have about so many of these women um, who were involved in suffrage and pushed for suffrage on the local levels. Sometimes we think of activists as, as being people who are like Susan B. Anthony, right? That, the, that their entire life is devoted to it and it's, it, it is the thing that they do. But what allowed women's suffrage to be successful wasn't just like the people who were paid to do it. And, and that's not me saying that Susan B. Anthony is only doing this because she's paid, but she's allowed to be so active because that is her job, right? In a sense. But it's also reliant on the work of people who are, who are doing this like Almanash, like the women in the band, they are, they are giving as they can, right? They are giving when they can. Um, and at times that, that, that becomes something extraordinary where a community comes together to fundraise money for them to go across the country to Washington, D.C. and participate in this incredible event. And then they actually continue for the next year or two in, in, in promoting themselves as a suffrage band. Um, so they're, they're taking advantage of opportunities as they come and using them to promote their own interests, right? The things that they are concerned about um, within the state of Missouri and the nation. Now, you've told us wonderful, fascinating information about Alma Nash, but what are some of the other projects that you're working on as well that we can kind of understand kind of all that, all that you're kind of encompassing in your research? Yeah. Um, so I've done actually a bit more with women's suffrage. Um, I published an article on Alma Nash, actually, with the Missouri Historical Review. But I also wrote a piece on um, women's suffrage in the Midwest for the National Park Service. And that came out last year. And then I've also worked with... Um, a sev several different um, versions of my women's history class on um, having the students write bio will actually research and then write biographies of different women in the state of Missouri who were involved in women's suffrage. And those are also getting published online. Uh, half of them are already available. Uh, those are getting published online as a part of an online encyclopedia. And that has been really fascinating for me to see because they are Again, I'm not from Missouri, and so it's just been really interesting to get a sense of what was happening with suffrage within the state. Um, and it's been a fantastic experience for the students because, one, they're learning about how hard it actually was for women to get suffrage and how long they fought for it. And then on top of that, they're getting this really fantastic opportunity as undergraduate students um, to be able to have a professional piece that's getting published nationally. Outside of that, uh, so I've got some very different areas, uh, very different areas that I research. Outside of that, I do a lot of work with um, Western women's history and sports history. I have a book coming out in um, November with the uh, University of Kansas Press, and that book is called um, Rodeo as Refuge, Rodeo as Rebellion, and it looks at race, gender, um, and identity in the American rodeo. And so I'm I'm really interested in looking at different types of rodeo. Um, I look at black rodeo, rodeo in Hawaii, the chariata, which is Mexican rodeo, but also takes place throughout the United States, gay rodeo, um, so all of these different uh, types of rodeo and 
why they emerged, which is a pretty easy question because many of them emerged because of racism, homophobia, discrimination, and segregation. But I think the more interesting question is why they still exist when so many other race-specific and separate types of sporting events no longer exist after the end of segregation. And so you've got a really interesting story, um, an interesting story with rodeo. And so I hope that's a, a book that people are interested in looking at. Well, that sounds very fascinating. We look forward to that, as you said, coming out um, at the end of this year. And uh, thank you very much for uh, joining us today and for uh, telling us all about Alma Nash and, uh, and the band. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, if people ever come to Maryville, stop by the Nottoway County Historical Society. Um, we actually have several, as I said at the beginning, several of the instruments that were in the parade. Uh, we have one of the uniforms that they wore, which is really interesting to see. We've got a complete uniform um, and just some, some great detail and really wonderful photos for people to take a look at. Thank you for listening to the Our Missouri podcast. If you would like to learn more about the podcast, including past and future episodes, information about guests, and upcoming events, please visit our website at shsmo.org forward slash our dash Missouri.